Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. Tonight we have Neil Gabler, many of you will recognize. Um, and uh, I just wanted to say that we have hundreds of these programs uh, that are on our um, website and on our YouTube channel, YouTube Commonwealth Club. So you can look at the uh, ones that we've done already. But tonight, uh, we are going to be discussing Catching the Wind, Edward Kennedy and the Liberal Hour, a very interesting analysis of um, the Kennedy wave, uh, which came in three parts, uh, three brothers, and also how it crashed. Uh, very interesting. Uh, I uh, take it from what I read about this is the first volume of a two-volume uh, Ted Kennedy biography and that you took him through 1975, around 1975. So welcome, Neil, and thank you very much for joining us. And, uh, thank you and for the invitation. It's great that uh, you, you, you switched your, your career to writing these great uh, biographies. So uh, first question I have is, uh, in your acknowledgments uh, at the end, you mentioned that the book started off as a, an idea to write a book about political morality. Now, did your publisher then say, uh, there's not enough material out there to make a book on political morality? <laughs> Well, these days they would definitely say that. Uh, it, it, in point of fact, it's, it's interesting, the origins of this book. I had originally, I'd, I was coming off of a biography of Walt Disney. Uh, so this seems very much like yin and yang when I proposed my next book to my publisher then, which was Kanaf. Uh, and I decided, I, I'd become really intrigued um, by the, the American soul, um, which I had already thought was... Um, in, and this is going back some years now. It took me 10 years to write this book. So we're going back a little more than a decade, actually. And I'd become intrigued by the idea that um, the American soul was not quite as bright as we all like to think back then. Now, mm -hmm. this is you know second nature to us, but it wasn't quite second nature to us 10 years ago. And I proposed a book and worked quite hard at a proposal for the book uh, called Hate, a Biography. Mm -hmm. which would be almost an encyclopedic story. It was a narrative of American hate. Mm -hmm. We always love to think of ourselves as the most idealistic, exceptional country, the city on the hill and all of that stuff. But I thought, you know, there's this other story that we don't like to admit and that we don't like to tell. Mm -hmm. and, and yet, in many, many ways, it did as much to shape what this country is, perhaps even more what this country is, than the idealistic vision. So mm -hmm. I proposed this idea. I hate a biography. And initially, Knopf, I have to say, was very receptive. Um, mm -hmm. And I will say, you know, even in prospect, though certainly in retrospect, you know, I thought this would be a, a, a very powerful and important book. Yeah. Um, but Knopf, after their initial uh, enthusiasm for the book, my editor came to me uh, and he said, you know, nobody wants to read about how bad they are. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I kind of joked with him, and, but only half jokingly, I said, no, nobody wants to read about how bad they are, but they love to read how bad other people are. <laughs> and, and I thought, well, and the people who could buy this book were the people who are likely to want to read about how bad other people are. That's what reality TV is all about, you know? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so, unfortunately, I wasn't able to proceed with that book. Um, but I recast it, and I started thinking about another question. And, and I should say, George, that... You know, most biographers, I assume, I can't speak for them, um, but I assume they begin with the subject of the book. That is, mm -hmm. most biographers who are writing about Ted Kennedy would begin with Ted Kennedy. Right. Um, say, I'm going to write a book about Ted Kennedy. I never, I never start any of my books that way. I always start my books with a question. Mm -hmm. And then I find a, an individual who will allow me to explore that question and whose life can serve as a kind of metaphor for the mm -hmm. examination of that question. So in the case of Kennedy, after I was coming off of this hate of biography, I got to thinking about a, a, an allied question and one which may be the central question of American politics over the last 50 years, which was what happened to American liberalism, mm -hmm. which was closely allied to the notion of morality for reasons I think we'll discuss in, right. in, the, in the next hour. And it was then that I, I thought that a lens for this examination might be Ted Kennedy. And when mm -hmm. I went to uh, Crown Publishing after leaving Knopf 
partly mm -hmm. because they wouldn't allow me to write the hate book. Uh, right. I went to Crown and, and the editor there said, um, you know, well, what about Ted Kennedy? Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and that got, that sparked me to this idea that I could write a, a story of American liberalism through the life of Ted Kennedy. That's a very long-winded answer, but that's how I got to this point. And that's a great answer because um, it, 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 and it also uh, illuminates uh, why your uh, book is laid out the way it is, why you end the, the way you do, um, yes. et cetera. It's a, it, that's a, a great explanation of, of how you got to this book. Um, makes it clear for those who you have already read it. For those who haven't, you'll, you'll figure it out when you read it. Um, well, it's in two so parts. It's because it's yeah. not just it's not just the biography of it. You know, you you have a definitely an arc, and uh, and you yes. know, very few people that are writing a biography would end the way you ended the first volume. Um, but we'll get to that. Which I but I thought it was really uh, powerful, actually. Uh, Thank to you. Do it that much. way. So um, one of the things that you say about the Kennedy, the whole Kennedy family up front, um, which uh, some people uh, obviously agree with, and other ones don't, is that they inspired people. To to you know bring out their best, uh, the better angels of our nature, as it said, um, and and of course uh, some of the speeches are inspiring and so on. But there's also the uh, you know a real problem with the Kennedy family. How how many problems with the Kennedy? Well, family. Many problems. Joseph Kennedy. I mean, they have they have such uh, you know just just the whole history and how how tragic the history is on top of everything else. But just just the way they lived their lives, uh, you know, not exactly in line with the better angels of, the, of some of the rest of us. Um, yeah, really true. So, but, but still uh, dedicated to certain ideas. And, and uh, you show how a lot of that was done for somewhat for political reasons, somewhat for real reasons. Mm -hmm. And I, I find that that combination very good for a politician. So let's talk about, you know, uh, we, we, we've just finished with a politician that doesn't seem to have a mixture uh, here at all. But a, a, a mixture of, of, of both real ideas, real history, real attempt to do something, and the usual uh, politics. Because one of the things that was fascinating about your book was all the background stories about how the things we take for granted were actually created. You know, people talk about you know not watching laws be created because you know it's like like watching sausage be created. Sausage, right. You, you have you have plenty and plenty of examples of that. I want to get into it because big big. Things that we all live with now uh, were were uh, cleverly crafted, including Martin Luther King. Here, a little aside about Martin Luther King and his being a slight politician, uh, a little disingenuous on the poll tax yes. amendment, was yes. very interesting. So why don't you start? We'll, we'll go back to Ted Kennedy, but I thought that was a very interesting little thing. So, what did you find out? Anything else about how that civil rights, the civil rights era, came? Because that was one of his first big things as a senator. So. Yes, well, Kennedy, you know, because of because John Kennedy introduced the Civil Rights Act mm -hmm. uh, in 1963, which ultimately became the Civil Rights Act of 1964, passed by Lyndon Johnson. You know, he took I won't say a leading role initially in civil rights legislation. His maiden speech, although it really wasn't his maiden speech in the Senate, was a speech in defense of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But, but to talk about the politics of civil rights, just regarding the Kennedys for a mm -hmm. moment, and I think that's really where you're, what you're alluding to here, George, right. is that um, you know, John Kennedy was a pragmatist. He was not basically an idealist. Mm -hmm. And he had no overwhelming desire to pass civil rights legislation when he was elected president and entered the, entered the presidency. Um, that actually came to him. And it, it, it came to him after the um, after George Wallace, you know, barred the the door mm -hmm. of the University of Alabama. And it was that night, in fact, that you know John Kennedy gives the speech that basically introduces the Civil Rights Act, which, which mm -hmm. would become the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And that was legitimate. You know, we talk about political things. Mm -hmm. And politicians, particularly today, being political, not only before their moral, but political without any morality. But in this case, and mm -hmm. Ted Kennedy said this, in fact, in the speech that I just alluded to, he said, you know, my brother was the first, I forget exactly how he phrases it, but the first to raise the moral issue here mm -hmm. uh, of, among presidents. And, and he's accurate there. And he's also accurate that John Kennedy... At that point, a man who was, was 
kind of, of devoutly political mm -hmm. in his entire career. He was not a saint. He was not a great, a great idealist. He was, mm -hmm. you know, essentially a pragmatist. That night he became an idealist. That night, mm -hmm. in 1963, and he realized, and he said, you know, there's not a great deal to gain from this politically. Certainly not from a, for a Democrat who is, you know, trying to win the South, which mm -hmm. was almost necessary to win the presidency, as as Kennedy had done, in in his in his 1960 race, but Kennedy felt. This was a time when you put politics aside because there was a moral issue. Mm -hmm. And when John Kennedy and, and Robert Kennedy also had no great affinity for the civil rights movement. And in fact, anyone who knows his career knows that there was a great deal of tension between mm -hmm. Robert Kennedy and the civil rights leaders. And on the Civil Rights March of 1963, you know, the, the president and, and Robert Kennedy, neither one of them wanted anything to do with mm -hmm. the civil rights leaders that day. And eventually Kennedy, Robert Kennedy did meet with him, but it was a tense meeting mm -hmm. because Robert Kennedy, again, had no great feeling for the civil rights movement. Ted Kennedy was somewhat of an outlier in this because his brothers told him, do not attend the march. Mm -hmm. Do not attend the march. And Ted was a little afraid of attending the march because he was afraid that he might become a, um, a target and he would mm -hmm. hear abuse of his brothers because they were considered insufficiently dedicated to the civil rights movement. But Ted did attend that march. Mm -hmm. And he said it had an enormous impact on him. And in some ways, you know, Ted Kennedy became the most adamant of civil rights advocates in the Kennedy family. And again, not for political reasons. And one mm -hmm. can, I, I don't want to skip over Robert here because Though I said that Robert had no great affinity for the civil rights movement mm -hmm. while he was attorney general, once John Kennedy died, as I think almost everyone realizes, well, of course, people don't really know the Kennedy history anymore, but so I'll mm -hmm. fill in that gap. You know, Robert Kennedy's life was transformed. Mm -hmm. He was a man transformed by his brother's death. And he felt at that point that he had to pick up a legacy that his brother had just begun. And part of that legacy was a civil rights movement. And Robert Kennedy, again, there were no, there was no political benefit in this, in, mm. in a country which was white and you know, increasingly conservative. But Robert Kennedy picked up that, that mantle and he mm. fought for civil rights as, as strongly for that brief five-year period as individual in American politics. And he became, as we all know, probably the leading figure, the white figure in, in the Senate of the civil rights movement. And when he died, Ted Kennedy, and he used this, this term, it was in a speech he gave in Worcester, Massachusetts, when he finally returned to political life after Bobby's death, you know, I'm going to pick up the fallen standard. It was called the fallen standard speech, the fallen mm -hmm. standard of my brothers. And he became adamantly dedicated to civil rights. But the thing I want to emphasize here mm -hmm. is that for all three brothers, ultimately, the attraction to civil rights was a moral one and not a political one, mm -hmm. not a political one, which is strange. It's hard for us to conceive of that yep. in today's political world. It's a, uh, you know, the family dynamics are really uh, amazing. And uh, you go into them, well, I want to go back to Teddy's childhood in a second, mm -hmm. but I, I wanted to make sure I didn't forget one thing, which was, you know, I mean, people know about the father, uh, Joe Kennedy, and, and we won't go into his whole history and, and, and the difficulties and stuff like that. But uh, he had obviously a political past and he had an interest in the presidency himself. But in 1957, you said in the Saturday Evening Post, there was an article in which Joe Kennedy said he wanted John in the White House, Bobby as the attorney general and Teddy as a senator. That was 1957 by 1962, the time you were describing in 63, 64. That was true. That's uh, quite a prediction for, for a father to make about three of his sons, you know what I mean? For, uh, and to no, make it, it come true. I mean, obviously, he made it come yeah. true. Yeah. Yes, it wasn't so much a prediction Self-fulfilling as, as a succession. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, this was, yeah. this was the way it was going to be. He had set this up. In fact, in some ways, Joseph Kennedy he had dedicated his life to the success of his, of his sons. Mm -hmm. And when Joe Jr. died, 
you know, as we all know, John filled the role that Joe mm-hmm. Kennedy Jr. was supposed to play, which was to be the first Catholic president. And then it was John Kennedy's turn. But there was a succession. In fact, I have a title uh, of a chapter, mm-hmm. you know, that, that right. is succession, which is the idea of how the Kennedy family was going to move through the ranks of American politics. And the things that Joe was denied, because he did have presidential aspirations himself, which he could never realize. Uh, in fact, I'll just add parenthetically that Franklin Roosevelt said at the, in the 1940s about those presidential aspirations that, you know, he, one of the reasons he sent Joe Kennedy to become the ambassador uh, to England was that he feared Joe Kennedy would, would try and buy for the presidency. But it wasn't so much that he feared that Joe Kennedy would wrest the presidency from him in mm. the contest, that, that he felt that Joe Kennedy would be a fascist. Yeah. Joe Kennedy's instincts were basically fascistic, and, mm. and that concerned Roosevelt. And it's very interesting that his three sons become the kind of bulwarks of American liberalism after Kennedy had his own you know, kind of right-wing proclivities. And that's, yeah, and that's a, a very interesting thing about the family dynamics, uh, other books uh, go into detail about that as well. But the fact that uh, Joe Kennedy um, loved his son so much and wanted them to succeed so much that he didn't care exactly what, it's almost like a, a father said, well, I want you to succeed. I don't care if you're a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, mm-hmm. well, I, I think you should go into politics. Um, I think you should be fascist. Maybe you didn't really say that. But, you know, <laughs> if you disagree with me, that won't get in my way. That's right. If you don't, if you disagree with me about what you should do when you're president, and I, I, that had to have contributed to to uh, Jack's pragmatism, you know that it's 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 the outcome you're looking for and not the actual ideas. Yes. Well, you know, his sons all opposed him ideologically, mm-hmm. and to Joe Kennedy's credit, and there's not a lot to put to his credit, I might say, <laughs> but to his credit in terms of his child rearing. You know, he, he inculcated in those boys enormous independence, including independence from him. Yeah. And he was nothing but, in a political sense, a, uh, a danger to his son's political careers, though in an economic and financial sense, obviously, he was one of the main, you know, boons to them by financing their campaigns. But and the, 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 the network. The son struggled to create yeah. distance, to say, I'm not like my father. Um, right. And I think one of, the, one of the contributions to their liberalism was that very process of saying, you know, I'm not my father. Robert Kennedy at one point took his father, when he was quite young, took his father to task for his father's anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. And, and you don't think of the, of the Kennedy boys standing up to mm-hmm. their father. And in fact, Ted Kennedy never did. But yeah. uh, I mean, he did. He followed his political career, but right. it wasn't as if he, you know, went face to face or toe to toe with his father when he did that. But but Robert Kennedy, as a boy, did do that. So there was a, a, a way in which the 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 boys created space and distance between themselves and their fathers, partly to to advance their political careers, because in the Democratic Party th- at that time, there was no advantage to being the son of Joseph Kennedy again, ideologically speaking, great advantage financially speaking. Um, but so, so there was that kind of dynamic, you know, within mm-hmm. the family. Um, well, well, let's focus on uh, Ted as we, as we should um, and go back to his childhood uh, a little bit, the, the boarding schools. But before we go there, I, I, I want you to tell the story about his first communion because it, it's like, you know, <laughs> how could you lose an election to the Senate in Massachusetts? You only would have to say, you know, had my first communion with the Pope. <laughs> with the Pope. That's right. At the yeah. time, Joe Kennedy was the ambassador to Great Britain. Of course, they were probably America's most notable Catholic family. Mm-hmm. And with the uh, investiture of the new Pope, they went to the Vatican. And little, little Ted Kennedy, little Ted Kennedy mm-hmm. uh, celebrated his first communion with the Pope at the Vatican. Uh, mm-hmm. And later, um, the Pope went to visit. Well, actually, prior, I shouldn't say later. Yeah. The Pope had, go- had, had visited the Kennedys uh, in Bronxville when they lived in Bronxville, New York, um, yeah. as part of a tour that uh, that he had that the that the, and then the Cardinal had made of the United States and a visit to 
to uh, Franklin Roosevelt, which had been partly arranged by Joseph Kennedy. So mm. the cardinal who became the pope had visited the Kennedys in Bronxville and then celebrated the communion with uh, Ted Kennedy at the Vatican. Uh, and I think, you know, we won't go into the details, but the network that Kennedy's, the Kennedy family had through the father uh, in, in many, many different areas was also extremely responsible for uh, the Massachusetts political successes that they had when they- Oh, I mean, it was, there would be no, there would be no successes were it not for Joe Kennedy's tentacles. I mean, that's, that's just a fact. I mean, look at, you know, Ted Kennedy enters the Senate when he's barely 30 years old. Right. uh, Barely old enough to be a Senator with no political experience whatsoever. All he'd been is an assistant DA in, in Suffolk County uh, now, how did that come about? Well, we know how it came about. I mean, it was yeah. the manipulations and the machinations of Joe Kennedy, who said to his two older sons, you know, to John and, and to Bobby, you've gotten yours. Now it's Teddy's turn. And that's right. what he told them. And Teddy's turn was to be the senator for Massachusetts. Quite a way to start your political career. <laughs> <laughs> I had a roommate at college that wanted to start that way, but he, he didn't <laughs> succeed. Um, <laughs> The, the, the other thing I think people don't focus on as much is the John Fitzgerald, uh, Honey Fitz, as he was called, uh, yes. the, the, the maternal grandfather, was also a, a Boston politician. And, and the Teddy was very close to him. And it, it changed the way he did politics. Let's talk a little bit about that, because that's well, very interesting. Yes, John Fitzgerald, Rose's father, was both a congressman and a mayor of mm-hmm. Boston. And when you look at Ted Kennedy, you know, all we talk about is Kennedy, 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 Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I, I point out in the book, Ted was much more Fitzgerald in many, many ways than he was a Kennedy. And by that, I mean that his grandfather, Honey Fitz, as he was called, uh, was very, very different kind of character, both morally and uh, aesthetically from the Kennedy family. He was boisterous. He was loud. He was a glad hander. Um, all of those things that are on the aesthetic side, on the moral side, he was a person who cared very deeply for ordinary people mm-hmm. uh, and who empathized deeply. And when Ted was young, uh, and, and in many ways, Ted, uh, the, the, the Kennedy side of Ted was a, was a very harsh side to Ted. Mm-hmm. I want to add that. I mean, I can go on at, at some greater length about that. Um, but I will, I will just say this about that before I get back to Honey Fitz, because you have to understand the Kennedy and Fitzgerald sides yeah. of Ted Kennedy. Rose Kennedy is often portrayed as this doting, sometimes fay mother who is, you know, what a great mother she is. Joe Kennedy was the, was the, was the, the ice, and uh, Rose was kind of the fire, the warmth, the hearth of that family. Mm-hmm. Uh, completely mischaracterization of that family. Rose mm-hmm. Kennedy was self-centered. She was uh, completely interested in the aesthetics of the family, mm-hmm. uh, in how everyone looked, uh, rather than in any kind of maternal warmth that she would give them. She was in many ways to her youngest son, Ted, an abusive mother. Because mm-hmm. poor Ted would be shunted from one school to another so that he couldn't make friends. He was at one point shunted into a school where he was four years younger than everybody else in his class because they didn't have a class for children his age. But Rose didn't care because Rose was only interested in where she was going to be. And if she was down in Palm Beach, then she'd take Ted down to Palm Beach. And if she was up in Hyannis, then she'd take Ted up to Hyannis. And if she was away in Europe, which she very often was, then she'd send Ted to boarding school. And so Mm -hmm. Ted had had a childhood that was extremely lonely and, and, and abusive, not only in many ways through her, his mother's indifference, but also abusive by the classmates uh, in, his, in his schools because he was a, a fat little boy. He grew up to be you know, a kind of handsome and, and athletic guy. But when he was a little kid, his nickname in the family was Biscuits and Muffins. He ate too much. He was a pudgy little kid. And, uh, and other kids at school made fun of him. Now, I want to shift over to the Fitzgerald side because uh, he frequently spent Sundays in Boston with his grandfather Fitzgerald, who would take him on a tour of the city and explain Boston history to him and, 
that Ted was an expert in Boston history. He became one in, in large measure because of his grandfather, but his grandfather mm -hmm. did something else. And it had an indelible imprint on Ted Kennedy. And that was his, his grandfather would go into a hotel and he'd go into the kitchen of the hotel and he'd you know, talk to the, the kitchen workers and, and he knew many of them, he'd embrace them. And Ted observed this, he'd walk down the street and, and he would say hi to everybody and, and people would come up to him and, and Ted mm -hmm. observed that. And Ted would later say that, um, I don't know whether he used this exact word, I don't believe he did, but, but basically what he said was, I learned empathy from my grandfather. Mm -hmm. That was the lesson. You couldn't learn empathy from the Kennedys. The yeah. Kennedys weren't empathetic, but he learned his empathy from Honeyfitz. And also he was modeled, he modeled himself very much in the image of Honeyfitz. You know, John and Robert were not glad handers. They weren't, mm. you know, these, these uh, they didn't love retail politics. In point of fact, they hated retail politics. Mm -hmm. Ted Kennedy, like his grandfather, loved retail politics. And he learned to love going out and shaking hands and embracing those workers in the kitchen just the way his grandfather did and walking down the street and saying, hi, how are you doing? And boy, what, is there anything I can do for you? And what that was the Fitzgerald side of Ted Kennedy. And as I said earlier, Ted Kennedy was the most Fitzgeraldian of all of the Kennedys. So that's, that, that was a great summary of his, of his uh, childhood. Um, I mean, you go into much more detail and it's, it's very interesting. So let's move to um, his becoming Senator at 30 years of age. Now his brother is already president of the United States. Uh, Bobby is already um, the attorney general. Uh, 62 is the, was the election, right? So I think right. the, the, the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis has already passed. No, it was right. Yeah, during so the election, that was right at the time of the election. That's during right. the election. Yes, yeah. in October, during the election. You know, uh, Ted was was running for John Kennedy's seat um, to f to fill out John Kennedy's term. And there's a mm -hmm. sort of interesting thing that tells you a little bit about the the Kennedy ambition and opportunism. Because when John Kennedy became president, he was leaving his Senate seat and he selected his Harvard roommate, a man by the name of Ben Smith, who had mm. very little political experience to occupy the seat. And occupy the seat, I think, is the correct term because yeah. the idea was he was going to warm that seat for Ted Kennedy, except nobody told him that he was warming <laughs> that seat for Ted Kennedy. If he'd worked with the Kennedys long enough, he probably kind of guessed. Yeah, well, he should have. But <laughs> in, in point of fact, he was he was kind of thinking that he was going to run for the the sent the unfinished term, um, and and nobody really told him until very long down the line that no that wasn't going to happen. Yeah, that this was now Ted's seat, and and the and the Ted was going to run, and that Ben Smith was going to be evicted uh, from from that. And, and Ben Smith was a great Kennedy loyalist and all of that, but nothing stood in the way of Kennedy ambition. And, and Ted, even Ted's own ambition, although he was largely pushed into that seat by his father, as I said earlier, you know, he said to, to John and Robert, you got yours, now it's Ted's turn to get his. Hmm. And, and Ted, though he didn't demur, you know, he wanted the, the seat, but he was kind of pushed into it. And, um, and pushed into a very difficult primary campaign against the nephew of the Speaker of the House, John McCormick. Mm -hmm. um, and his nephew, Ed McCormick, who was the Attorney General of Massachusetts, ran against Ted uh, first at the convention, the Democratic State Convention, and then when Ted got the endorsement, ran against him in the, in the Democratic primary. And it was mm -hmm. a brutal primary. It was a really brutal primary of these two Massachusetts dynasties to mm -hmm. see whether the more seasoned uh, McCormick would beat the completely unseasoned Kennedy. Well, we know mm -hmm. how it turned out, but, <laughs> but it's a great story nevertheless. And in the book, I, I try and tell it in some detail because it's, it's a very interesting story about how the Kennedys operate and a very interesting story too about Ted's kind of natural instincts for politics. Mm -hmm. Because though he had no political training whatsoever, he had better instincts politically than either of his brothers. Yeah. 
um, I think it was very interesting, you know, just one small little detail that when Ted won, uh, that Ben Smith uh, resigned uh, early. Right. And, and what was the reason for that? Ben Smith resigned in December 1962 so that Ted Kennedy could get seniority over the other, other incoming freshmen in that yeah. 1962 class. So Ted, you know, was the senior senator of that <laughs> class of freshman senators. <laughs> that just seemed like such a, you know, political detail, the, the, the paying attention to every little detail of how to move forward. So, um, so he's in the Senate and, and we've already talked about some of the first things that he did. Of course, um, why don't you talk a little bit about how his brother's uh, assassination uh, shifted him. And of course, his brother, Bobby, you talked a little bit about it, but how that, that shifted them. That, and that was not their first loss, the family loss. Uh, how many children were there in the family? Nine, I think, right? Well, Ted, uh, Ted was the nine. nine children. Yes. Nine. Um, and and uh, the oldest brother had been killed in the World War II. Right. Uh, one of the older sisters had died sisters? in a plane crash. Yes. Kathleen. Um, and, and, and another sister, Rosemary, had, it was hospitalized more or less permanently. Yes. For, well, she, for, she, was, uh, she, she was mentally um, challenged. Yeah. And, um, and the Kennedy family, you know, the Kennedy family, as I said earlier, and this is a, this is a matter of Rose as, as much as anything else, you know, the Kennedy family was an aesthetic object. And to really understand the family, and I go into some detail in the book about this, to really understand how the family functions, you have to understand that aesthetics were everything to Rose Kennedy. Mm -hmm. It was all about how you looked and how you dressed. And even her piety was, was, was aesthetic. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not saying that she wasn't a spiritual woman. She was. Right. But the, the, the kind of theatricality of her piety, how she went to church and how often she went to church and how she made her children go to church, and I mean, everything in the Kennedy family was theatrical and aesthetic. And it was very difficult for a, a child who was mentally challenged to live up to the Kennedy aesthetic. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people know the story of what ultimately happened to Rosemary, mm -hmm. which was that um, she was beginning to act out as she got older and became a teenager. And... Um, Joe Kennedy, though he didn't do this out of any sense, Joe Kennedy did many awful things in his life, but this he did not do out of, out of uh, you know, any, any sense of trying, of, of trying to punish his daughter or right. out of any sense of, of being uh, casually it was, strong, it was strongly medically advised and it he was bought strongly the medically advice. advised yeah. that he lobotomize his daughter. Mm -hmm. And, and he regretted did. it every minute after that. He regretted yeah. it every minute. And Rose claimed that she never knew about it until much, much, much later, which may very well be true. I don't know. No. Um, but, uh, but basically, I mean, Rosemary was kind of, uh, I mean, if you want to look at it metaphorically, she was um, destroyed for not living up to the Kennedy standard, the Kennedy right. aesthetic standard. So the family with nine children yeah. had lost basically three, two to death and two to one to the hospital. Uh, then John was killed, and then Robert was killed. And all of that happened. So five, a majority of the nine children yeah. were dead before they were 45 years old, basically, right? Yeah. That's not that, I mean, that's just very uh, devastating. Uh, I mean, it's not like it was the Middle Ages when people died that young. Yeah. This is, you know, through the mid 60s. Um, and so you talk about Teddy taking the standard up um, and Bobby first taking the standard up of his of his two older brothers. And then and then Ted taking it up for his three older brothers. Um, yes. it, it was it was uh, something unusual, something emotionally unusual. And the family was certainly set up to do just that as if it was right. as if Joe was not a king, but a, a duke or something like that. And the, and right. the family had aims at the kingship, you know, and which basically what happened. But but George, let, let me pick up on what you're saying. Because I don't think that people understand this. Yes, there was a succession. And the idea was, it's like in football, next man up. Well, in the mm -hmm. Kennedy family, it was next, next man up, you know, when somebody died. But Patrick Kennedy, Ted's son, mm -hmm. said something to me very interesting and that makes an awful lot of sense. Particularly when you look at the, the, the damage in that family. Mm -hmm. Because the idea of next man up which was a, a really a, a Joe Kennedy kind of, of idea. You know, you're stoic, 
Nobody cries among the Kennedys. He always mm-hmm. said, nobody cries. Kennedys don't cry. You step up and there you go and you, you, you do what you have to do. But what Patrick said to me was, he said, you really have no idea the kind of damage that all of these deaths inflicted upon the Kennedy family. They mm-hmm. look stoic, but that stoicism was the, the mandate of Joe Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Because underneath that stoicism, Patrick said, was post-traumatic stress disorder. This was a family that was racked and destroyed by those deaths. Mm-hmm. And the story I tell here of Ted, after the death of John, but particularly after the death of Robert, to whom he had grown very close, mm-hmm. they were Senate compatriots. You know, he had gone to the Senate in 62, as you said. Mm-hmm. Bobby had run for the Senate in New York and come to the Senate in 64 as preparation for what he hoped would be a presidential bid, which he ultimately did run for. Mm-hmm. And they, they were relatively close as, as children, although there was still a, an age differential between them, but they became very close, you know, in the Senate. And when Bobby died, Ted was, Ted was devastated, absolutely devastated. He was a lost man. And I know when I'm, you know, when I write these books, I, I often compare it to method acting because you you feel what the subject is feeling. Mm-hmm. You try and get yourself into the subject almost as an actor would get himself into a role. I could never act a lick in my life ever, but <laughs> you know, I, I I can I I I understand this kind of of mechanism. And, and you appreciate good yourself, acting, right? Pardon? And you appreciate good acting. Oh, I appreciate it. I very much appreciate good acting, <laughs> uh, having been a film critic for many years. But, but you, you know, I was getting myself inside of Ted and feeling what Ted was feeling, which was, again, he's a lost man. Mm-hmm. He's lost everything. And he also feels that he's next on top of everything else. So he's not only lost everything, anything that mattered to him. These are the only things that really mattered to him. Mm-hmm. Um, but... He'd also now, he was the next one on the firing line because by succession, he had to pick up the fallen standard. Mm-hmm. And, and when I was writing those passages in the book, and they're long because the devastation goes on, mm-hmm. it does not recover quickly. And not only does he not recover quickly, but he almost seems to internalize the pain so deeply that he goes through a long bout of self-destruction. Yeah. Which Chappaquiddick, frankly, becomes a part of. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as I as I, I, I quote someone who knew Ted quite well, saying, you know, Chappaquiddick was you know sort of the last act of, you know, Bobby's death. But mm-hmm. when I'm writing those things and I'm feeling, I'm feeling what Ted is feeling. It's to get inside of Ted or to try attempt to get inside of Ted. I mean, this is a family that's destroyed. We only look at it again as a family that comes together and that survives. Mm-hmm. The Kennedy family did not really survive. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the damage inflicted on Ted, we think of Ted as well as this happy-go-lucky, sometimes hedonistic kind of fellow, a Rabelais right, right. figure, Falstaffian in some ways. Um, and there's truth in that. I'm not saying that, that that is completely a mischaracterization of it. But what we don't see is what was hidden by that kind of performance. Mm -hmm. And what was hidden was a man who was very, very deeply, deeply wounded by life. Deeply wounded by life. And, you know, and and not just his mother, but the the brothers, but you you tell the story of the plane crash um, right after the Civil Rights Act passed, which killed one of his, uh, you know, colleagues, um, yes. and nearly killed him, um, and then of course Chappaquiddick. So why don't you tell a little bit about that plane crash? Because the plane crash kind of disappears in history. It does. And and then and then Chappaquiddick, I think you, you tell it in a way, you know, of of you know, it could have been given Ted's lifestyle, 
exactly what people say about it. Yes. But that it's not, that's not the way it was. And I, I find that an interesting, you know, it's like, you know, you, you get hung for the thing that you actually did almost correctly. <laughs> you know, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Fact, so, so why that, don't you tell those the stories together? Because he, he had his yeah. own personal tragedies, you know, before he, you know, before 1970. So that's right. Well, in, 1960, in 1970, how old was he? He was still in his 30s, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he was, you know, he was, well, he was born in 1932. So, yeah, yeah he's, you know, 38 years old. Right. So, it, it, the plane crash happens the night of the passage of the Civil Rights Act of mm -hmm. 1964. Ted stays at the Senate to see the final passage of the bill and then races off with Senator Birch Bayh uh, to the Massachusetts State Democratic Convention, mm -hmm. which is going to nominate. Ted Kennedy for his own uh, term. Now, he had filled out in 1962 his brother's term, and now in 1964, he was running again, two years later, for his own term. And Birch Bayh was to deliver the keynote address. So he and Birch Bayh and Marvella Bayh, Birch Bayh's wife, you know, jump into this little plane and to, to shoot up to the convention that night where Ted will accept the nomination and Birch Bayh will give the speech. Now, people don't really remember. You're absolutely right, George. The people don't remember this episode in Kennedy's life because there are so many other tragedies that overlay yeah. it. Um, but what happens is that they're, is they're coming into the airport in Northampton, in Massachusetts. Uh, the pilot miscalculates. And he hits trees and it clips the, the plane and the plane crashes. And you're right. One of Ted's aides dies. The pilot dies as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Birch Bayh and Marvella managed to escape. You know, I have photos in the book of, of the what the plane looked like, and it's mm -hmm. crumpled like a like a piece of tin foil. Yeah, they managed to escape and try and race away from the plane before it explodes. Uh, Ted is trapped in the plane and can't get out, and it turns out his back is broken. Mm -hmm. Birch Bayh heroically decides to rush back to the plane, which he does. And he finds Ted, and through some, one of peculiar acts, we always hear these stories of people who lift automobiles off of, you know, yeah. children who might be pinned underneath, and you don't know how they could possibly do it. He somehow manages to get Ted out of that plane and carry him across a field and away from the, the, uh, the fuselage. And, uh, and Ted survives, but they're not sure he's going to survive. In mm. fact, for a week, he is you know, dangling between life and death in the hospital. And because his back is broken, he can't move. And he's put in what's known as a striker frame, which looks like a, what a rotisserie would be when mm. you're drilling something. He's like stuck between these two metal plates and, and you know, spun around. And he's there for six months, mm -hmm. six months in the hospital. He basically cannot move. You know, he slowly begins to convalesce. And that happens in June. He doesn't get back to the Senate until, you know, December. So, you know, in, 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 in that period, he learns several things. I mean, he learns even more about personal suffering. Uh, that also leaves, by the way, I mean, he is never able. He was a great athlete or he's an extremely good athlete in college, Letterman mm -hmm. at Harvard and but, you know, his back is such that he's in constant pain and remains in pain through the rest of his life, not only emotionally, which he certainly was, mm -hmm. but in this case, physically. I mean, these two pains mm -hmm. that, he was, that he was trapped between. But he also uses that time in the hospital to conduct for himself a tutorial where he has great professors from MIT and Harvard come to the hospital when he's transferred to Boston and to school him on a host of issues because he's determined now he wants to be a great senator mm -hmm. and he's not going to waste this time. And he uses that time to be tutored to become what he hopes will be a great senator. Now, that's the that's the the accident. Uh, yeah, one, one, la one, one little diversion here. You know, the Kennedys are considered among the most intellectual politicians, you know, that, that, that we've had in 50, 60 years. But none of them are really good students. They all went to Harvard, yeah. but. None of them were really good students. 
Um, and they, I mean, Teddy was the worst. Took an interest in history and so on, but but yeah, exactly. No, that's that, and Teddy was often considered the worst, um, which also you know uh, prompted people to call him the least intelligent of the candidates. Mm. Now, I would make an argument. I do make it in this book that not only was he the most complex of the candidates, although that that tribute would often go to Bobby, but I think Ted was more complex even than Bobby. Mm -hmm. um, and Ted is often called the least intelligent of the Kennedys. But I think when you read these two volumes, if you read these two volumes, mm -hmm. you may come to the conclusion, I don't say this because I'm holding any brief for Ted Kennedy. One thing I try and do whenever I start a biography is never to start with preconceptions. I don't write about people I love or people I hate, because mm -hmm. I think that leads to a, to a book that is not going to be very good. I write about people whose lives are interesting and whose lives I can investigate, and, and I take mm -hmm. them wherever they go. But I believe that Ted Kennedy may have been, and I'm not the only one who said this, no less an authority than Joe Kennedy said mm -hmm. this, and I quote him in the book, that I think Teddy is the brightest of myself. Mm. And, and there are many, many demonstrations of that, I think, in these two volumes. Um, but I, I want to just add, I, I close that chapter on right. the plane crash with a phone call from Lyndon Johnson, uh, who calls Teddy while he's in the hospital and says, uh, you know, well, you know, there's some people who say that it doesn't hurt to, to suffer a little. <laughs> and, and Ted, I forget Ted's exact response to that, but it's something along the lines of, well, I'm, I'm going to learn a lot then if, it, if suffering a little is supposed to help you. Yeah, or, or haven't I suffered enough already, you know? Yeah, so. yeah. Now, Del Chappaquiddick, George, which you brought yeah. up, is, you know, we do not have anywhere near the time to litigate Chappaquiddick here, but I will say this about Chappaquiddick. Um, and I intentionally, I will, I will tell our listeners, I intentionally did not name a chapter Chappaquiddick in this book. And yeah. for this very reason, I knew that the first thing that anybody would do would be to turn to that chapter, the only thing they'd read. And, well, yeah. Let me read about Chappaquiddick. And I don't do that because I think Chappaquiddick is a very, very complicated kind of thing. And it's not just a, a soap opera event. Mm -hmm. uh, Ted Kennedy is, is often accused including by himself, of having committed, you know, some sort of grievous crime at Chappaquiddick. Uh, he did some grievous things after the accident in mm -hmm. terms of not reporting it. But I think to view it that way um, misstates everything about it. Mm -hmm. um, to just contextualize it, you have to understand that at that point, Ted Kennedy is, is kind of, as I said earlier, a lost man. Mm -hmm. He hasn't found his bearings yet. He doesn't find his bearings for a very long time. One could even make the argument that he doesn't find his bearings until he marries Vicky, you mm -hmm. know, you know, many, many years later, 1992. So um, he's a lost man. And he goes to, to Chappaquiddick and he goes to that party because he's asked to do it um, by one of the, the so-called boiler room girls who would worked for Bobby Kennedy and who were, you know, basically having a kind of wake there for, for Bobby. Yeah. Uh, the last thing in the world that Ted wanted to do is attend another so-called wake for Bobby, but he does it. But you have to understand that the, the emotional condition he's in is very tenuous, very tenuous. And, um, and you have to understand that whatever happened in Chappaquiddick and only two really know what happened mm. although i i try and give as detailed an account as as i can possibly give having read everything i can possibly read and gone through the inquest transcript very very carefully that you know i again i i won't hold brief necessarily for ted kennedy but i will hold brief for mary joe kopechny yeah. and i will say that mary joe kopechny did not go off with ted kennedy to have some romance yeah. That is so alien to anything that Mary Jo Kopechny was um, that it's an insult to her memory to think that she would have done that. It just wasn't who she was or what she would have done. And in point of fact, it wasn't what Ted Kennedy at that time with that woman would have done. Yeah. Not a woman who worked for his brother and who was honoring his brother's memory. Right. Ted Kennedy did a lot of stupid and, and, uh, and awful things in many. That wasn't one, I don't believe. Yeah. But the thing that I, I think is important to understand, which was lost even at the time, was the Chappaquiddick was an accident. Mm -hmm. Now, there are many, many books written about how he deliberately killed her for reasons that make no sense, or the CIA had her killed. 
the frames. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, there are so many Rube Goldbergian explanations for what happened to Chappaquiddick, but I don't want to give away the, uh, the ending here, but here's a spoiler alert. Occam's razor hmm. makes the most sense in this situation. Ted Kennedy told the story about what happened and we read in many, many accounts, including most by, you know, important journalists that there are a million holes in his story and all of that stuff. Well, you know something, there are minor discrepancies in his story, mm. but this notion that there are major holes in his story, there are major holes in his story. And the idea that he didn't report the accident because there was some nefarious scheme. I know the movie Chappaquiddick talks about Teddy's first response is, well, now I'll never be president. That's nonsense. That's mm. utter nonsense. That's not who Ted Kennedy was. It's not what he would have said. It makes him out to be a sniveling idiot. Ted Kennedy yeah. said afterwards, and I think it's absolutely, if anybody who knows anything about Ted Kennedy knows this is true, but anybody who knows anything about human nature knows this is true. Forget yeah. Ted Kennedy. He said, I didn't report the accident because I didn't want to pick up the phone and tell the Quebecers. And I would have to do that. And I couldn't bear the idea. This man who had heard so many times in his own house, mm. his parents having to pick up the phone to hear that, well, in, in Joe's case, the, the, the army came, or the Navy came to the house and said, you know, your son has died. Or when Kathleen died yeah. and they picked up the phone, he'd been through that. And he didn't want to do that. And that doesn't make him courageous. It doesn't make him good. It doesn't make him right. Uh, in some ways, it's reprehensible that he wouldn't pick up the phone and make that call. But it's certainly understandable. It's understandable. Well, the other detail that you give that also undercuts the, the, the mostly negative uh, idea about it is that he didn't try to help her. And, and the, the way you describe it is, you know, one thing that I thought was very clear was that everybody who tried was pulled away by the current. That yes. is, even scuba divers that were good at this could not, could not resist the current. So if he told the story of diving down three or four times until he was exhausted but couldn't do anything, that, that might have been self-serving if, if like there was no current or if it was just a little, a little pond, you know, people think of it as a little pond without any, any running water in it. So why would that make sense? But your, your, your version with everybody else trying the same thing later on and professionals doing it, still having trouble, make it clear that that could be the true story. You know? People That's go it. to great lengths. And no. when I say people, I, I, let, me, let me, you know, amend that. Republicans at the time, one in particular by the name of Richard Nixon, right. tried to, went to great lengths to try and, and make Chappaquiddick into something other than an accident, to make it into something that where Ted Kennedy murdered Mary Jo Kopechny somehow, right. or just left her, because that's certainly what Ted Kennedy would do, when there's no evidence in, ever in his life that he would do something like that. Yeah. Um, well, but it is, there is evidence that Nixon would do what he did, which I thought was very interesting in your book, that they had a dirty trick that they wanted to have a party for the boiler room girls. Boiler room girls were the other people that worked yes. with, with Mary Jo in order to try to uh, seduce them, incriminate them in some way in order to get them to lie about the situation. Well, that was... They not. sent, Nixon sent Lotharios to romance the boiler room girls to get dirt on Ted Kennedy. Yeah. I mean, you know, if there's a villain in this in this volume, it's Richard Nixon. And even if you can some in some ways sympathize at times with Nixon, who was a man who just lived within his resentments, they were so yes. deep. They were so deep. And he looked at the Kennedys and he saw they had everything. Yeah. They had wealth and they had looks and they had affability. And he himself said, you know, I'm not a kind of person that people like. I quote that in the book. <laughs> yeah, you did, yeah. People don't like me. But he also was resentful for that. He had none of those things. None of those things. And, and he lived his life in terror of the Kennedys. But since two were gone, you know, it, it, he would really, really lived his presidency in terror of Ted Kennedy. Even after Chappaquiddick. That Ted would, 
would conduct a Kennedy restoration somehow. Somehow he'd manipulate because that's what Kennedys did. They were so good at that. And everybody always forgave them. Well, of course, they didn't forgive him for Chappaquiddick. Right. There was no restoration. But the, the conflict between Nixon and Kennedy is an extremely interesting one that shapes American political life for quite a long time. And you, you, you clearly did a lot of research because you quote Nixon many, many times in the book about lots of things. And I was wondering, did you get that from transcripts of tapes or did you get it? Did you ever listen to his tapes and how he I said did it? listen to many of the tapes? Yeah, because sometimes I mean, I, I have transcripts, but I also some of those things you, you, you pull right off of the tape and you right. listen to Nixon saying those things. It's always better to listen to him because right, you right. see then how his tonality, how he exactly. says things. You know, whether he's yeah. just sort of musing or whether he's sort of sticking the, the shit. Right. <laughs> uh, so as often as possible, I did try and, and listen to the tapes, as I did with Lyndon Johnson's tapes as well. Right. Um, you know, it, 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 it took me 10 years to write this book and volume mm -hmm. two, which is already written and will yeah. be out next year. Um, and, and people wonder, my wife included, why does it take you 10 years <laughs> to write a, a lot book? of material? Uh, but there's a lot of material out there and, and you don't ever want to cut corners, although inevitably you do, but yeah. you do your very, very best to dig into everything, not only to, to acquire it all, George, but also to, to give the sense that you've mastered it all so that when you're writing, you feel on top of the material and you can write with a certain kind of confidence. It's not just the detail that you want in the book, but it's the confidence and the authority that you want in the book to feel that you've done the job and that the reader can trust you. And mm. that's very important to me. Um, well, it's I, interesting. I, I, I'm opinionated, yeah. but I want the reader to trust my opinions. It, it's very interesting that both Lyndon Johnson, the Democrat, and, and, and uh, Richard Nixon, the Republican, both, both aimed there. I mean, both had very uh, interesting, lousy relationships with the Kennedys, and at the same, and at the same time, were always trying to make sure that they were all right with the Kennedys. You know, uh, doing little personal things to try to, you know, like doing a nice personal thing when 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 Patrick had his uh, surgery. But at the same time, he's on the tape. You know, now we're going to get him this way. You know, so it's like, you know. It, there's a lot of uh, belief that politicians are insincere, and your book is not helping. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that's very, very true. I mean, Lyndon Johnson, of course, as, as Robert Caro has pointed out, was a master manipulator. Um, mm -hmm. And he loved to manipulate Ted because he couldn't manipulate Bobby. He and Bobby were at loggerheads all the time. Yeah. Bobby detested Lyndon Johnson, and Lyndon Johnson detested basically all the Kennedys. Uh, for the, many of the same reasons as you just pointed out that mm. Richard Nixon did. He resented them. You know, mm. he felt that they had gotten everything and he had gotten nothing. And of course, they resented Lyndon Johnson because they thought he was a usurper. He had taken John Kennedy's place. He, he was insincere. He really didn't care about civil rights. He didn't care about any of these things, which was not entirely true about Johnson. Mm -hmm. He did care about civil rights. But Johnson was able to manipulate Ted because Ted had grown up in a, in a kind of nimbus of deference. In his own family, he was always deferential. So mm -hmm. here is this gargantuan figure, both physically and, you know, kind of spiritually, Lyndon Johnson. And Lyndon Johnson knew how to play Ted Kennedy. Although I, I talk about one passage in, in one passage in the book where he thinks Lyndon Johnson kind of, uh, of um, uh, overstates his own ability of manipulation because he right. thinks he can pit Teddy against Bobby. Right. He thinks by stroking Teddy, he can get Teddy to turn on Bobby. And as Teddy himself says, boy, a Kennedy's never going to turn on a Kennedy. <laughs> that just is never going to happen. Yeah. I mean, for yeah. Teddy to turn on Bobby, never. They might make wry remarks about one another and, and little digs at one another, but Kennedy's never turn on Kennedy's. And that was a miscalculation on Lyndon Johnson's part. Now that's, it's kind of funny that these, these two uh, guys are, are feeling insecure and resenting the Kennedys, and they're both presidents of the United States. I mean, it's not like they're, they're failures in life. <laughs> but they're not so, loved. They're, they're not, not loved, loved. exactly. They're and what loved. they don't have is that sense of charisma that the Kennedys had to, to draw on the better angels of the nation. Whether the Kennedys had a right to do that or not, yeah. um, 
and and I, I I'm not sure that John Kennedy really, you know, was that kind of moral figure. I say he he came to his morality relatively mm-hmm. late in his presidency, and Bobby came to his morality relatively late in his life. Uh, yeah. Ted is the one who comes to the morality earliest, and and I make the statement. I don't know whether I make it in this volume or whether I make it in volume two, but that we read you know, Bobby and John into Ted right. as, and, and, and it makes Ted seem more liberal, the, the, you know, Mr. Liberal. But I think that we read Ted, who really was the most liberal of the Kennedys, back into his brothers so that they become more liberal in retrospect. In retrospect, yeah, you, you, you do mention that in the first volume, and I, I thought it was a really good comment. Now, we, we've only got a couple of minutes left, unfortunately, but um, I do want you to talk a little bit about all that legislation, you know, especially the stuff when Nixon was counteracting everything. Medicare, it was interesting. Medicare for all was, was uh, an expression, you know, 50 years ago. And, and, and uh, Teddy was aiming for it. Uh, the Cancer Act, uh, full tax. There, there are so many things, and I, we'll leave it to the readers to, to, to see how that legislation was created. But the horse trading that goes on and the way that Teddy um, had learned to... Uh, not manipulate, um, but but do well with older senators, even ones he didn't agree with, um, because he was the youngest in this big family. It was a nice point you made, I think. So yeah, why don't you talk for a couple right. minutes about that? Yeah. yeah, well, we think of Lyndon Johnson as the master of the Senate, as mm-hmm. you know, the title of one of the volumes of Robert Carroll's great uh, biographies. And he's the master of the Senate because he knows how to twist arms and intimidate and get the things he wants by just kind of being this overbearing figure. Mm-hmm. Ted Kennedy was no less a master of the Senate. He introduced 2,552 pieces of legislation. He passed just under 700 pieces of legislation. He was certainly the most productive Senator in the history of the American Senate, but he didn't do it Lyndon Johnson's way. Mm-hmm. He had his own technique, which was never to be overbearing, but to be deferential, to stroke people, to be nice, to be friendly, to get people on his side. He was the, the carrot to Lyndon Johnson's stick. Mm-hmm. And you know, to understand how he worked, I, I think you, I can summarize it in something that you would never hear said in today's Senate. Whenever he would introduce a piece of legislation, he would always say to his staff, get me a Republican. Mm-hmm. Meaning, get me a Republican co-sponsor for this because right. that's how we're going to get the legislation passed. We'll get it with by joining together with Republicans. He would also say, you know, the, the old phrase, the perfect is always the enemy of the good. I know I can't have everything. He wanted Medicare for all. But mm-hmm. then he was willing to strike a gigantic bargain with Richard Nixon that came this close to passing where they would have a, a, uh, a health care policy that resembled very much Obamacare. And, and they came this close. And Kennedy always said it was the greatest regret of his life the greatest regret of his political life, that he and Nixon couldn't, when Nixon reeling from Watergate and Kennedy from Chappaquiddick, that they couldn't get together and just just make that happen. It mm-hmm. came so close and we would have had national health care in 1974 rather than, you know, when Obama passed in 2000. Yeah. And then you end the book. Um, we'll, we'll end with this last, last thing. You end the book with the end of the liberal hour because of busing, because of yes. the busing issue and, and, and how this totally loved man that, that was carrying the banner for two brothers that were well-loved was still not loved in this circumstance in Boston and, and maybe the, 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 it, it, and, and for his people. So why don't you ex- explain a little bit about that? It's interesting because uh, Kamala Harris used it, of course, against Biden. Now they're working That's together. Right. So, <laughs> Well, you know, busing became, you know, Americans were not opposed to integration, and that's something that that speaks well of America then. I mean, we can't speak as well of America now, unfortunately. But then, I mean, Americans backed the Civil Rights Act of 64. If you look at the polling data, they backed the Voting Rights Act of 65. They were for integration. But when it came to integrating schools and busing children, Mm -hmm. that I, I don't think people realize what a major force that was in ending American, white American support of civil rights. Hmm. And Boston was being integrated and it was being integrated through busing. And it, and, and it was absolutely botched. I mean, the whole process was botched. It was the courts 
that ordered the busing and they ordered students bused from Irish and Italian neighborhoods to into black schools and from black schools into Irish and Italian you know, schools. And it just was an absolute disaster. Ted Kennedy was no great proponent of busing, but he was a great proponent of integration. And he supported the court ordered plan. Uh, what happened, and I'll, I'll make this, it's a, it's a long story and I'll make it just very brief. Um, Boston, his people, his people, the mm -hmm. Irish Catholics and the Italian Catholics of Boston turned on Ted Kennedy. They turned on him because they thought he had no sympathy for their situation. And Ted was caught betwixt and between, which was kind of the, 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 um, the conundrum of liberalism at that time. Ted mm -hmm. couldn't turn his back on integration. He wouldn't do that. He couldn't do that. But he didn't also want to turn his back on the working class Irish and, and, and Italians of Boston who resented busing. And mm -hmm. here was Ted Kennedy between these two forces. He opted for integration. But in doing so, he lost the allegiance of the Irish and Italian Catholics and lost it to the point where, I mean, this book ends literally with Ted Kennedy running for his life. That's not an exaggeration. Mm -hmm. Running for his life from a mob of largely Irish Catholics who want to kill him, who right. want to kill him. And that's the end of the liberal hour. Yeah, and that was a nice dramatic way to end it. Um, and, uh, and that's a nice dramatic way to end this uh, discussion as well. Um, but uh, it's, it's fascinating that, uh, you know, I have to ask him because uh, what did he win by in his next election? Because his next election for senator was just two years later. He decided not to run for president. Sure. But two years later, right, what was his margin? Was his margin lower than usual? Uh, slightly, or, but not, or, not, but not that much. So he recovered. No. He but we'll find that out in volume two. You will. You will. Okay, great. <laughs> well, thank you very, very much uh, for joining us, Neil. Uh, that was uh, a very great discussion. And so Thank ends you. another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 118th year of enlightened discussion. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed it. Come back and see us again. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.